Focus on your product. Don't forget your vision, your initial vision and your product. Focus on what you believe and just execute, execute, execute. Of course, that doesn't mean to not listen to uh, your peers or your friends or whatever that gives you advice. But what's important is to stick to your vision. I'm Pepe Blau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Jonathan Angeloff, co-founder at Aircall, a cloud-based call center and phone system. Since its founding in 2014, Aircall has raised over $226 million in funding and now sits at over $100 million ARR with over 700 global employees. In this episode, we discuss the massive opportunity Aircall saw in the market, how they got an early leg up on the competition by being specific about their ICP, and why innovation remains a core part of their strategy. Let's get into it. What was incredible back, back in the time is that we all had mobiles. We all had mobile phones. We, we all had even smartphones. And so making a call through internet was something pretty normal. We all knew Skype. Uh, we all knew different video conferencing tools. It was existing, but the phone systems were always the same. It was always this black box in front of you uh, on your desk. And people, you know, picking up and uh, hanging up the phone and, and that's it. You know, it was very one-way. Uh, and we thought, okay, we need to digitalize that. There is tons of apps like WhatsApp or whatever, Skype existed already. Huh? But for the professional side, it was very limited. And so the idea started from there where we asked ourselves, what if your phone system now is on your computer and it's just going to be easy. And so the opportunity was there at that moment where we realized, okay, people are looking for simplicity. People are looking for a phone system that you can set up in minutes anywhere in the world. And so we started from that concept. And then we realized, of course, that the one that makes most of the phone calls uh, in a company are always the same, either sales team, either customer support departments, and so we build the, 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 the software, we build the call around those teams to bring them productivity. And to bring them productivity, we had to connect to all the tools they're already using, uh, CRMs, help desks, etc., to make sure that when they do a call, they can do it fast, they can do it efficiently, they can know who they are on the phone with, uh, they can have the history of the, the calls, uh, they can listen back to the calls, etc., at the time when you started, uh, what was the competitive landscape like in terms of like the new digital players? Like today, this place is pretty crowded. What was it like back then? They already existed. Let's say our big American competitors already existed uh, and they still exist today. But by the time they were way less digitalized, very old school, very complex to, um, to set it up. I think the market in eight years didn't move so much. I mean, yes, there is some small players coming in. There is copycats. There is, you know, a long tail of new type of competitors, but the big competition is still there. And actually, it is a very nice competition because it, they help us also evangelize this market because we started as a pure software. They started as hardwares and they're all moving to softwares. 
it's a good way also for us to justify what we are doing because we get more and more customers also thanks to them. And by the time, you know, you just start your business, you see some big guys and you see that you will provide the same type of service, but not at all uh, the same uh, product and with added value that has nothing comparable. And so we went straight in it, uh, a little bit like crazy, let's say, because we didn't have much experience in the telco, nor as a startup founders. But I think we were super lucky to choose our go-to-market and to choose the product we sold, as it is such a huge and a deep market that, you know, by doing things approximately by the time things work out, and the product was really attractive uh, in terms of functionalities and also in terms of uh, value added for uh, the customer. So we kind of grew consistently at a uh, very fast pace over the past eight years that brought us in 2022 actually over 100 million AR. If you're the only one doing what you're doing, you're either a true innovator or it might be a sign that nobody wants what you're selling. And if there's no market for your product, you will spend endless time and resources trying to convince people they should buy it. And that's a tough life. Your other option is to enter a market with lots of pre-existing demand and take control of the narrative. If you do that, your competitors might even become evangelists for the problem you're solving. That's how ABM platform Terminus is winning, as their co-founder Sangram Vajra explained on a previous episode of How to End. I've always said there is no such thing as category of one. If you hear anybody say, you know, we really don't have any competitors, if that's the case, then you probably shouldn't be in the business. Like that, that just means that nobody really wants it. Having competitors is great. Uh, and our strategy was we wanted to build a category. We wanted to be part of building a category. So we invited Sixth Sense, Engageo, Demandbase. All of our competitors have sponsored all of our conferences. So what's exciting about that was all of these companies had to uh, invested in building the category of, of ABM. And we love that. We even gave them all the stage and have them talk because we own the narrative and we wanted to bring all of them alongside on creating this big category because we just knew that as long as the category is big enough, then everybody will have a larger stake. There's enough to go around. Each one of us brings something different to the table. So that's great. Tell me more about that initial go-to-market strategy. How did you choose which segments to go after? What kind of bets did not pay off? How did you find your rhythm? What we thought is to be able to price a phone system with value and not just provide a commodity, because a phone system at the end is a commodity. We, we all have mobiles, you know. If it's not a smartphone, it's a commodity, Okay. And why do you accept to pay $1,000 for a smartphone? Because it's not anymore a commodity. What was a commodity is the ex-mobile phones where, you know, you make phone calls and that's it. And we thought, okay, we need to bring value. To bring value, we need people that don't use the phone as a commodity. And so people that use it intensively. And who is using more intensively the phone than uh, sales or uh, customer support department? No one. And so we focused on that segment for the first six years, I would say, on how sales will be able to do intensive calling with Airco 
So being able to have uh, automations in calling, push the call, the calls directly in the CRM, uh, push the recording, the transcripts for customer service departments, uh, trigger automatically the CRM when uh, a customer calls, show all the history of the call inside their call, trigger the right page, the right information when they need it to improve their productivity. Because what is more frustrating than you calling a customer service of, you know, your favorite e-commerce. And the first question you always get is the same. Is, hello, sir, uh, can you give me your phone number or your uh, customer number? And, you know, you're calling with that number, so why do they ask you that? Or or actually, when they ask you your customer number, who knows his customer number? So it's very frustrating. You lose time. You have to tell your name. If your name is a little bit complex like mine, you know, you have to repeat 10 times because A, N, G, no, it's not G, it's J, J, you know, it's like a mess. But the most important was to bring the value. So increase the number of calls uh, reps can do, uh, help managers understand how their uh, um, teammates are working and uh, make sure that you deliver the best service. So when you call someone that is using Yerko, he's going to welcome you. He's going to say, hey, how are you, Jonathan? How have you been doing? I, I've seen that you, you've met a, a purchase with us recently. Are you calling about that purchase? So the point is improving that service. Your product supports multiple jobs to be done. And you could go in many different directions with it. How do you choose what to focus on in your messaging? A good place to start is to identify the major pain points of your customers. Here's Rachel Lambert, co-founder of Olivine Marketing, with her thoughts on choosing the right job to be done. So you have to prioritize the job to be done. Quick example, customer support space for Intercom. We were initially speaking about the job to be done of making it really easy for your customers to get help. But that wasn't what directors of support really cared about. What they were being asked by the board of directors is, hey, revenue and customer counts gonna double next year, but you don't get to double your headcount. So the job to be done was like scaling the support team by being able to handle more, more requests without doubling headcount. There's gonna be like many jobs to be done for each product, but you have to figure out which one is most important to your buyer. Today, there are a lot of uh, players in this space and a lot of companies did not succeed. So you and many other players jumped that opportunity at the same time, more or less. You're now at 100 million ARR. Many others are struggling or already went under. Why did you guys succeed? What did you do differently or better? I would say we focused very much on uh, our ICP, so ideal customer profile. We thought, okay, we know that we need to target companies that have the right need, okay? So we were very focused on that segment of sales team and customer service team. That was the beginning of Airco. Today we are, we are providing the phone system of entire companies, but that's another story. When you start, it's important to focus on the right team at the right moment. Second, the tech. So we, we took a lot of risk with trying to make everything live. So you start Airco, you can five minutes later, even three minutes. I think our first catchphrase uh, on the website was set up your phone system and call center software in less than three minutes. And this was a big risk because we thought what people need is instance now. They need instantly things. 
And being able to provide a, a, a phone system, a cloud-based phone system, uh, with numbers anywhere in the world, no matter where you're sitting yourself, that was incredible by the time. And I think this choice was the riskier we, we, we took, but at the same time, the one that made us probably be where we are today. Even though there is still a lot to do and we still want to do a lot, uh, but this is one of the reasons. The second reason uh, is probably the most important, is that very early, we understood the fact that companies love to have products that communicate with each other. And you know, seven years ago, when you talk about integrating the phone system to the CRM or to the uh, help desk or to any other tool, people were like, oh, right, that's interesting, etc." But for operational managers, for the VP sales, for the VP customer support, it was incredible. They were like, seriously? So I will be able to know when I called this customer last time, or I will be able to listen back to the, the call. I'm going to be able to listen live to the call of one of my reps. You know, that was pretty awesome uh, by the time. And it really made our go-to-market easier. And this is what we've been known for for the past years is it's easy to set up, easy to use, and easy to manage. And this made a kind of a difference. Aircall nailed its go-to-market strategy. But what even is a go-to-market strategy? Here's Asia Matos, founder of Demand Maven, explaining it. Go-to-market strategy, it is basically the full deep dive plan into how it is that you plan to take your product, we're assuming SaaS in this case, how do you plan on launching your SaaS to the world? And all of these things are 100% dependent on what it is that you ultimately want to accomplish. And I think that that is probably why go-to-market sounds really terrifying for a lot of founders. You see so much more content about inbound and content marketing and demand generation and lead generation. And it's really hard to consolidate and figure out how all of those pieces fit together. But go-to-market encapsulates literally everything. It is the complete total package of how you plan to operate this business and make it revenue generating and of course just offer the product to the world. And it always makes me sad when more people don't talk about it, but I would say it's step number one before you ever even think about conversion rate optimization or running ads or what have you. It's always the first step. How were you acquiring customers early in the company lifetime and how has that changed over time? Honestly, the, the way we acquire customers didn't evolve so much. We were very early, very focused on outbound. So a, a very uh, large sales force uh, going after our prospects and making sure that we cover the market a, as much as possible. Of course, a very good inbound uh, engine as well uh, with a lot of content being produced, with a lot of very precise webinars or, or partnerships with different actors that, you know, fit in the same type of ICP we had. And it helped us a lot. And of course, one of the, the, the best go-to-market we had until now is the fact that as we integrate with 100 plus softwares, 85% of those integrations were not done by us, were built by uh, the software vendors themselves. So by uh, a CRM, a local CRM in France, a local CRM in UK, a local help desk uh, in uh, Australia, whatever. 
And this helps us grow because those companies are building something on top of us. And then they say, hey, our software, we sell it, but we also have air code that is connected to it. So now you're going to be more productive with my software, but also with air code. So it's incredible. You know, we mix both. And so this helped us a lot from a go-to-market perspective because we are not the only one that sell our product anymore. We have partners that help us and that they are not actually incentivized uh, financial-wise by us, but they're incentivized to sell the best product possible, which is hopefully their product. And their product associated to ours brings more value or logically more values than the competition. You guys raised over $200 million over the years. How did you allocate that money strategically to drive growth? How much went into like product R&D? How much went into sales and marketing, etc.? Top of mind, I don't really exactly have the numbers, but what we target always is sales and marketing, about 50% of the OPEX and another 50% mixed between GNA and, um, and of course, R&D. Uh, which is probably uh, around 40% of our spending. So it's for us very important to have a strong tech team, but as well as a strong marketing team. Now the world is changing and, you know, you have to go towards profitability. So at Airco, we uh, we launched recently really like a restructuring uh, of our way of working and uh, making sure we go towards profitability fast and that's very interesting because it changes the way we work and it uh, pushes us to uh, challenge ourselves. We call it efficient growth. It says everything on its own, but it's how do we grow in a more efficient ma- manner with burning less and still growing at a high velocity uh, pace. So how are you going to do that? Does that mean you're going to lay off people or... No, no, no. We keep recruiting, actually. Uh, by the end of the year, we're still recruiting about 50 people. Next year, a few hundred. So no, no, no. We're still recruiting a lot. We are actually just expecting more from the teams. We are trying to find uh, more profitabilities. We're trying to uh, hire less. And uh, if we hire, we hire more senior, more experience. So we avoid what every startup goes through is one project, one person, uh, we try to have, if there is a new project, okay, let's see how we can do it on our own, you know. Hiring people with deep expertise is worth the money. Better decisions at a much faster pace. A senior person with a ton of expertise costs more, but allows you to move much faster and focus better. Deep expertise shapes your mental model for analyzing a picture. You will start to see patterns, and how one thing affects another. Things novices miss in a blink of an eye. Training fast cognition will take time and practice to reprogram your mind to quickly recognize system effects. It's what years of experience does. Situations will look different to someone with deep expertise. It's the same thing Malcolm Gladwell writes about when describing the 10,000 hour rule. To be truly great at what you do, you need experience. Almost without exception, it appears to be impossible to achieve a level of excellence in any cognitively complex task without first putting in 10,000 hours of practice. So when we look at chess players, grandmasters, there's only been one grandmaster in history who achieved the level of grandmaster without playing 10 years of chess. 10,000 hours and 10 years are roughly the same. Almost impossible to find a classical composer who composed a truly great work 
without first composing for 10 years. Even Mozart, who we think of as the poster child for um, precocity, he doesn't do his first really great work until he's 22 or 23. I mean, really transcendent stuff. At which point he's been composing for, you know, 12 or 13 years. He is actually technically a late bloomer. Looking uh, into the future, you know, five years, 10 years from now, in tech, over time, all competitors become very similar in terms of their features, capabilities, and uh, companies start differentiating more on brand. What is your take on your like long-term moats and competitive advantages? I would say the, the, the one that we want to make sure we always stay on top of it is innovation. We want to be innovative. Our goal is to be innovative always. And not just build the product, is build the future product the companies will use. And so innovation is at the hearth of our uh, DNA. Actually, we are preparing the launch of a new product pretty soon. That is not the type of product usual phone system have. And uh, we want to make sure that we keep innovating. Of course, on the brand side, there is a lot of things. First, we value a lot uh, diversity and not necessarily experience only, like a lot of companies, even though experience is important. What we love is having people from different backgrounds with different experience. And all this mix makes it incredible to succeed. Uh, and it worked uh, until now. And we keep doing that, having people from all over the world that work on one product with different experiences. So you've been now uh, running this company for eight years, eight years, you know, and going. What are some three pieces of advice you would have for fellow B2B SaaS founders? Now, looking back, lessons learned. Focus on your product. Uh, don't forget your vision, your initial vision and your product. A lot of founders tend to panic when they see competition, tend to panic when people are telling them, ah, you shouldn't do that or whatever. Focus on what you believe and just execute, execute, execute. Of course, that doesn't mean to not listen to uh, your peers or your friends or whatever that gives you advice. But what's important is to stick to your vision. I've seen so many companies just changing their vision just because they hear there is a new competitor going. You know, I even see it often, you know, I do, I do a lot of business angel and I love doing that. And I get founders contacting me very often say, hey, we've just seen that new competitor. Uh, they announced the $1 million investment in their company. It's tough. Come on, seriously. Are you seriously looking at a company that raised a million dollars? Who cares? We don't care. Let's go. It's, it means actually your product has a future. So let's go. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on the execution. So execution, one of the most important. Then second is succeeding in business doesn't necessarily mean raising money. And I know Airco is a bad example of that. Of course, we raised 220 million, but a lot of companies succeed without having the need to raise. So don't take the assumption that if you don't raise, you cannot be successful. That's wrong. That's wrong. Some of the best companies in this world have done it without raising a dime. So it is possible. And third, hire your first employees like founders. They have to have this founder spirit. They have to be a little bit entrepreneurs. Don't look right away for the most experienced person with the most ad, uh, advanced uh, skills, etc. Find people that are hungry. Find people that 
are entrepreneurs to be. And actually, funny, funny enough, all my first employees, and seriously, all of them that stayed with us at least three to four years are today entrepreneurs. They were born like that. You know, they, they, they had this little sparkle inside their eyes that made us feel, my co-founder and I, when we recruited them, they are the right guy. And we are extremely proud of the choices we made because, you know, at the beginning, I believe a company is it's easy. It's a lot of execution. Then it becomes more complicated from 10 million AR on, you know, you have to bring leadership, you have to bring experience, you have to bring people that have done it already. But early stage, focus on your team. And your team of the beginning are seriously the most important people for your company in general. And uh, rely on them and give them this little sparkle that you have as a founder because every founder has a flame in, inside himself. You have to make sure they get that flame too. And if they get it, you've done 50% of the time. Because when you have the right team, anything is possible. So, what three strategies saw Aircall soar to 100 million in ARR? One, they entered a massive market with lots of opportunity. I think we were super lucky to choose our go-to market and to choose the product we sold as it is a, such a huge and a deep market that, you know, by doing things approximately by the time, things work out. Two, they focused on a specific ICP that had the biggest need. We thought, okay, we know that we need to target companies that have the right needs, okay? So we were very focused on that segment of sales team and customer service team. Three, to keep ahead of the competition by continually prioritizing R&D. Our goal is to be innovative always, and not just build the product, is build the future product the companies will use. And so innovation is at the hearth of our DNA. One last takeaway from Jonathan. What we thought is to be able to price a phone system with value, and not just provide a commodity, because a phone system at the end is a commodity, you know? If it's not a smartphone, it's a commodity, okay? And why do you accept to pay $1,000 for a smartphone? Because it's not anymore a commodity. We thought, okay, we need to bring value. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lea. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>